thankful that Josh asked his old man to come up and to speak and to preach tonight. Um, I, I, I want to share something with you, just a little bit, a little bit about me and what I'm so thankful for about Storyline, and that's this. I have been a believer now for 53 years. I grew up in some great churches in Oklahoma. But none of the churches, even the church that I attended as a child that my grandfather was a preacher of, none of those churches or pastors that I sat under, except for one after I got into ministry, ever preached exegetically. Now, what do I mean by that? It means taking Scripture and working through it book by book and chapter by chapter. And so whenever, I, whenever Josh asked me to preach and he said, Dad, this is where we're going to be whenever I need you to preach, I thought, oh, crap, I've never heard a sermon on this. <laughs> I, I, I've never heard that I can remember anyone ever preaching about this discourse between God and Abraham. And I thought, okay, well, here we go. This is going to be good. So I, Josh gave me some literature, some commentaries to look at. I've got a ton, as you would expect, of my own that I was able to go through. And I just devoured that information. Just devoured it. Because as I got into it, I saw how applicable it is to today for us. And I'm praying that the same thing will happen to you tonight, that you will wrestle with God's Word and that you will truly be able to go through and look and see what is it tonight that God wants me to hear from Him. So let's jump into it. I'm going to do a quick recap if you weren't here, but also what I have learned in preaching is that most people don't remember what the preacher preached last. Okay, so I'm going to do a really quick recap. So last week, Josh preached chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. And what we saw on that was this beginning of this story where there were Abraham and his wife Sarah were in their tent, their home, and three men walked up, and those three men, one of them was God, and the other two men were angels. And they sat down, and Abraham ran around like crazy trying to get everything ready, and they prepared a meal for him, and they sat down, and they ate, and then Sarah gets there, and she's cooking, and she's preparing, and she hears God say, I'm going to come back in a year, and you're going to have a son. And she has this, this laugh inside of her saying, yeah, that's going to happen. It had been said to her many, many, many times, and she had just lost faith. Just lost faith. And she was really old, too. That's another thing. Okay, so... God confronts her and he says, I heard what you said. I didn't mean that. And he's confronted her and said, yeah, you did, and I heard it. And he was actually really patient with her at that point. So now we pick up with this story after dinner is over with, and we see Abraham and God and his two angels, two men, get up. 
and they're headed toward Sodom. And we want to pick that story up right now because what we see here is a big transition in the relationship between Abraham and with God. And I want, to, I want you to catch this big transition that's happening here. God's calling Adam, Abraham to take on the position and the plan for his life that he has called him to be. It's time for Abraham to grow up. Guess how old Abraham is? He's 99 years old. And he is just now stepping in to, to what God's plan was, plan was for him, but it's not too late. It's time for him to grow up and to become the man that God is calling him to be. So it's dinner, it's time to get moving. They get up and they start, start walking towards Sodom. Let me read those verses to you again. Follow along in Scripture, whether it's digital or it's analog. Listen to these words again. The men got up from there, and he looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with him to see them off. And then the Lord said, Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? That's a really strange question. Okay? Have you ever had somebody come up and say, You know, I've got a secret, but should I really tell you? You know that they're just dying to tell you, right? Right? So it's, it's God saying, You know what? Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this story, so listen closely. I think he, he was really trying to capture Abraham's mind here and to, for him to truly listen. So he says this, Abraham is to become a great and a powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him. I'm going to give you a little bit of commentary as I read. That, those words, for I have chosen him, said, he's saying, I am selecting you to have fellowship with me and to join me in this great pursuit. A beautiful picture of fellowship between God and, and Abraham again. Now, listen closely to these words. He's chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he had promised him. He's commanding Abraham to do something that is really, really important here. He's commanding Abraham to go through and to teach to his children and then to his children's children all that God had told him, so that they would know and then do. Throughout all of Scripture, you hear those two words, know and do, said over and over and over again. Now, this isn't the first time that Abraham has heard this. He's heard this over and over, but now God is giving him a little bit more detail. Here's what I want you to do, Abraham. It's not just for you, but I want you to be sure and to teach it to your children. There weren't schools back then. All of the instruction came solely on the shoulders of the parents. And parents, let me just give you a heads up. 
it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It's your responsibility. It's our responsibility to teach our children. And now Sarah and I get the privilege of even reinforcing, reinforcing what Josh and Cherish are doing at home to teach it to our four grandsons here and with Chris and Amanda and Felix in Washington as well. Is to teach them God's Word, to know it, but not just know it, but do it. That means daily it's a ritual in your life. Daily it's a lifestyle. You're living it out. I remember whenever I was small, there was a TV commercial. And that TV commercial back, <laughs> now remember, I'm 61 years old. So this is whenever there was a lot of commercials about cigarettes on TV and that it was really cool uh, to, to smoke. You guys probably don't remember the camel man, you know, the Western. Yeah, okay. So that's what I'm talking about. So there was this, pic, there was this commercial that came on, and this father and son were walking down the road, and the father would pick up a rock and throw it, and then the, the son would pick it up and throw it. He'd pick up a stick, and he'd throw it, and the son would look all around everywhere to pick up a stick, and, he'd, and then he'd throw it. And then he, they sat down underneath the tree, and the dad pulls out out of his pocket, just like my dad always carried his cigarettes right in his shirt, shirt pocket. He pulled out a cigarette, lit it, and the son is just watching him. And immediately you're thinking, okay, the son's going to grow up and he's going to smoke. Okay? Our children are watching us. Our grandchildren are watching us, and they are going to do not what we say, but actually what we live. Let that sink in. It's our responsibility to teach our children God's ways. And he is saying right here to Abraham, by doing that with your children and with your grandchildren, then my promise is going to come to fruition in your life. It's not just you. It doesn't just rest with you. You've got to share it with other people. We've seen Abraham grow up so much since we first were introduced to him in Genesis chapter 12. We've seen him grow from a scared man to an immature man who is now living as God wants him to be. We've seen him live a life where God was patient with him, patient with his disobedience, patient with his unbelief, patient with his testing and trying God, and then taking things into his own hands instead of waiting upon the Lord. Now we see a huge turning point in his life and what it is, is Abraham is owning who God has called him to be. He's taking it seriously. We see Abraham and God interacting with, with each other on a different level. We see Abraham's belief in God, and we see him living out what he's called to do in these passages. 
I would even say it's, God, it's Abraham going from adolescence now to finally into adulthood. God's saying it's time to man up. So here's God's plan. In Genesis verses 18, verses 20 through 22, we see this. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin, their sin is extremely serious. And I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. And if not, I will find out. And then the men turned from there, and they went to Sodom. So God sends these two men, these two angels, to go down to Sodom and to be able to go through and verify what these cries, what these prayers were that were coming up. Coming up to God and to see if they actually were as bad as they were saying that they would be. Okay. Even back then, people blew things out of proportion, apparently, uh, with their prayers. And so they're still doing it today. We're not much different from the people back then. So God sends the two men down to investigate those, those cries from Sodom. This should give us great, great relief that God doesn't just answer any prayer or any cry out unless he knows that what the cry is and that he has gone through and investigated it and found out that it's true. Think of the children's story, crying wolf, or thinking, thinking about, think about someone who is saying that something happened to them, but that's what they thought it actually was, but it really wasn't true. God investigates everything because he is a just and a righteous God. He's a just and a righteous God, and that's a good thing. That's a really, really good thing. And that outcry from those in Sodom and Gomorrah, they find out is exactly true. Now, what's the outcry? Well, we don't get a lot of information in this right here, in this portion of Scripture, but we get a really good glimpse of that when we look back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18, 16, verses 48 to 50. Let me just read that so that you're going to understand and you can see the, the words right up here. This is Ezekiel giving the account of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. As I live, the de declaration of the, Lord, of the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as you and your daughters have. Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. He's talking about he's comparing two different cities here. Okay? All right? We're getting a comparison of one city in comparison to Sodom and their acts and their behavior. She, Sodom, and her daughters had pride. They had plenty of food and comfortable security, but they didn't support the poor and the needy. They were haughty, and they did detestable acts before me, so I removed them when I saw this. So the cries of the people were from the abused, poor, and needy inside of the city of Sodom. You know, whenever I was growing up, I always thought that, well, what I knew Sodom and Gomorrah as was a sinful city of homosexuality and incest and great perversion of sex. That's what I remember. But what the cries from the people were 
sound really similar to a lot of the cries of today. Cries of injustice, cries of the poor, cries of the needy, cries of the marginalized, cries of the people that just never get seen. Like the people that are on the streets that are begging for money. Like the displaced people that are moving into our city from other countries because they're seeking shelter and refuge. Those are the cries of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to God because they were being overlooked and unjustly treated. Sound familiar? Well, let's look at Abraham's plea. So, this is where this passage gets really, really interesting. Really interesting. I'm not going to go through and read through all of it, but let me just give you a little bit of commentary about it real quickly. So, as we read through Genesis 18, 20 through B through 33, we see, we see this. We see that, first of all, Abraham asked a question, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's not going through and confronting God because he thinks that God's lying. He's actually saying that in an affirming statement. Okay? He's really saying, how can you as a God, because I know you are a just God and you're a caring and a loving God, how can you actually go down and obliterate everyone if there are some righteous people in there? And then he says it again in a different way. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And I think we have those cries out today because a lot of people don't understand. They think or they say these words, I believe in God that he's a God of love, but I don't believe a God of judgment. You ever heard that? How can God be a God of justice without being a God of mercy? And how can God be a God of mercy without giving justice? If there's iniquity, if there's sin, if there's people who are being persecuted and beaten down, if God doesn't bring justice on the people who are doing that, how can there be mercy? Okay? You see the, see the argument there? Okay, so God is both a God of mercy and of justice, and that's what this, this quarreling is about here. And I think it's really, really interesting that Abraham, we see, Abra, we see Abraham going from this shy guy, going from this guy that was pulling away and doing everything that he can to to not get in trouble, but he's always getting in trouble, to now he is literally arguing with God. Arguing with the creator of the world. Now, let me give you just a little kind of glimpse into my life. My, my father was an attorney. And in growing up, anything that I ever wanted, I had to go before the judge and plead my case for it 
the good, good reasons and, and give him a really solid reason for me, to, for me to be able to go and do something or to get something. Dad, can I borrow the car? Why? Well, I'd like to go somewhere. Where are you going? It, it was just question after question after question. So I got really, I'll just say this, I'm really, really good at arguing. You can ask my son, my sons and my wife and probably my daughter-in-laws too about that. But I'm really good at being able to build a case. And here we have Abraham who's actually acting like people whenever they go down into a, a foreign country. They've been to Mexico, I can't tell you how many times, and we always love going to the market that, there, and what you do with the people, the vendors there, is you dicker back and forth on the price, right? Okay, that's kind of what we see going on here with Abraham and God. Hey, hey God, uh, you, all right, you're going to go down, but what if there's 50 people in Sodom that are actually righteous? W will you spare, now catch this, he doesn't just say the 50, but he says the whole city. And God says, yeah, I'll do that. Then he goes, okay, well, well, what if there's five less? What if there's 45? Yeah, I'll do that. Well, what if there's 40? Okay, I hear you. Yeah, I'll do 40. Well, what about 30? The way that Abraham is doing this is we don't see somebody that's haughty. We actually somebody that's coming in with humility to do it, for one thing. And he is also understanding that God could just smash him in the midst of this discussion. So he's fearful as well. You see that in that passage stated twice. God, don't get mad at me, but let me ask could 30? And what about 20? How about 10? If there were 10, would you spare Sodom? And God says, yes, I will. And then something crazy happens. God leaves, and then Abraham leaves. What? What's going on here? I mean, Abraham was on a roll, you know? If I would have been in Mexico going, I would have gone for one. Okay, instead of 10 pesos, how about one? You, will you do that? But Abraham doesn't do that. I read a lot of commentaries about this. That's a, I mean, that's a great question to ask, right? Why didn't he go down to one? Now, remember this. Abraham, his nephew, Lot, and his family are living where? Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? First of all, why would he do that if he only wanted his nephew and his family out? Well, there's a big difference here because remember, Abraham has been called the leader of the nations. And part of being a leader is to fight for everyone. 
Sodom and Gomorrah were part of the nations, and God is getting ready to obliterate that nation. And Abram, Abraham does something really interesting. He steps into the role of a priest. What does a priest do? In Old Testament and in New Testament, the priests were the ones that were the bridge between God and man. They would go into the Holy of Holies, and they would take the sacrifices and offer them up for the sins of the people. So they were the mediators between God and us. And part of that mediation is fighting for the best for the people that they are overseeing, that they were taking care of. So what Abraham was doing here is he grew up. And he finally took seriously what God had called him to do. And he was saying, Sodom and Gomorrah are part of the nation that you are making me responsible for. And I am going to do something very interesting. And that's this. At the first of this passage, when we see that the two men had left, here's Abraham and God. And we say that God is standing and that Abraham approached him. What that is, is it's actually something very technical and it goes back to the judicial system, even of our land today, where you have the judge setting up on the bench and the defense attorney going and taking a step before the judge to plead for his client. And so you have Abraham who is taking a defense. He's being, being the defense for Sodom and Gomorrah, pleading for them, and he is standing in front of God saying, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. But why does he stop? I believe, like many others, he realized that there wasn't anyone righteous in Sodom. He knew his nephew well enough to know that he certainly wasn't righteous. And he also came to this self-awareness himself to say, I'm not even good enough to stand there. And so he left. And that's where the story ends at this point. So what are some things that we can draw out from this? Well, whenever we see Abraham stepping in, he's actually, this is actually our first visible account of a priest doing priestly things. So Abraham start, steps in and becomes priestly with them. But what, what are some of the things that we can really glean from this? Is first of all, Abraham took the role that God had given to him. He stood up and he said, I'm going to own what you're calling me to do. And God, I'm going to ask you to do the, what I'm going to ask, and that is to spare this, or this nation. Now, think about this. 
What's Abraham's history with Sodom? Okay? He's got a big history. In fact, Sodom, were the, that was the country that went and kidnapped Lot and his family and hid them. So then he took an army over and fought with them, and they tried to kill him and all of his army. So they have been feuding. And now here's Abraham standing in front of God, pleading for all of the lives of Sodom to be spared. What changed? He took the role of the high priest, and he was fighting for that city's highest good. He boldly stood before God. He didn't just whimper up to him. He boldly stood before him and pled his case for Sodom. Another thing that we see here is he's persistent. I I have a personality that whenever I start getting questioned about my credibility, I can go into defensive mode really, really quickly, really, really quickly. And here's God being so patient with Adam with all of these insistent, incessant questions, 50, 45, 40, it, it, it's, it's like little children coming up to you. Daddy, can you do that? No. Why? Daddy, can I go and do this? No. Why? 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 And God just continued to be patient and patient and patient with him until he finally came to understand justice has to be served here. And God leaves, and Abraham leaves. So, Abraham had to put away his prejudices to be able to stand before God boldly instead of asking God just to annihilate Sodom and Gomorrah. God changed Abraham's heart. towards him and not towards anger. Another thing that we see here is this. Some key things that we can learn about God is that he listens to our prayers. One thing that should give us great solace is this, is that when we cry out to God, he hears. He answers our prayers. He yearns for his children to cry out to him and to lay all of their burdens at their feet. God hears our prayers. The question is this, how often are we praying? Laying at his feet all of our burdens, all of our cares, all of our worries, all of our concerns, all of our hurts, all of our anger, all of our bitterness, all of our questions. Why aren't we going before him 
and pleading for him, for us, but then also for other people as well. We also see that God's patient, like I said, God's patient with Abraham. He loves him, and we're seeing such patience with him. And if, if he can be patient with Abraham with all of the ways that he screwed up, he can be patient with us. He will be patient with us as well. Another great thing that we see here that I never caught, but I hope you do tonight, is this, God's mercy outweighed his justice in this. Do you see that? It went down. God, with all of this dickering back and forth with Abraham, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, God's answer was always, okay, if there's 10, I'll spare them. His mercy always outweighed his justice. He was always wanting to give mercy instead of justice. But it came down to the fact what? The fact of this. He couldn't give justice because there wasn't one righteous. And here's why Abraham walked away. He realized that he couldn't stand in, and there was no one to stand in to take the place that would thwart God's plan of annihilation of Sodom. He walked away without an answer to that, but we, because we have so much more knowledge today, we know that there is an answer, and that answer is this. That answer came in the form of Jesus. It came in the form of Jesus. Now, Abraham was the first priest that we see that actually is living out their priestly duties, but Abraham couldn't fulfill the full role of being a priest that could bring salvation to a nation and to a world. That had to come through a different kind of priest. It had to come through a greater priest. You see, Abraham... Abraham did some things that he could do, but he couldn't fulfill everything. I got these quotes, and I just I want to read them verbatim to you. Abraham is the priest, but Jesus is the high priest. Catch this. Abraham prayed for the people that could have harmed him, but Jesus prayed for the people who killed him. See the difference? Abraham risked his life by going before God, but also by pleading for the Sodomites. He risked his life to save and to plead for the people. But Jesus willingly gave his life so that there would be a righteous one that could stand in the gap so that we could be saved. Hebrews 7, verses 20, 26 and 27 says this, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the, the kind of high priest that we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this. This is Jesus. He did this once and for all time when he offered himself. So Jesus is the great high priest, but it doesn't end there, friends. He now calls us a royal priesthood. Okay? Abraham was a high priest. He stood in the gap trying to defend, but he couldn't really do it because he wasn't righteous. Jesus is the great high priest that can do us, but because he has saved us that have given our lives to him, now he calls us a royal priesthood, and he's charged us to go and to be his light and to be his salt in a world today. As royal priesthoods, we need to do this, and this is the application, okay? This is our application. In First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, It says this, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possessions. Why? This is is our calling. These are our marching orders so that you may proclaim the one of the, that you may proclaim of the one who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The application is this. As royal priesthoods living in our world today, there's four things that, there's many things, but four things that God really laid on my heart for us today at Storyline here in St. Louis. One's this. Accept God's invitation to pray. God's laid it on the heart of the leaders of this church for us to become a praying church, for us to be known as a church of prayer. And we need to accept God's invitation to pray. Hebrews 4, 16 says this, Therefore let us approach the throne. Approach the throne. Step before the judge and lay all of our carries and worries and concerns before him. Secondly, we need to pray boldly. Just like Abraham prayed boldly, we need to pray boldly as well. 1 John 5, 14 says this, this is the confidence. We can have confidence in going before God. This is the confidence that we have before him if we ask anything according to his will. Will he will hear us? And then third. We need to pray unhindered. Now, what do I mean by that? Mark eleven two says this. Therefore, I tell you, everything that you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And listen to these words. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. There's a really important little word that I said there. 
Let me go back to it. If you have anything against anyone, forgive him so. In order that, if you do this then, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. Are you praying right now and your prayers aren't being heard, aren't being answered? Is it because you're harboring anger and unforgiveness to the person or to people that have hurt you? You need to get unhindered. You need to cast that off. Let me tell you how. I don't know who told me this. I obviously haven't ever forgotten it. But it's this. It's hard to stay mad at somebody that you're praying for. You want to get rid of the anger and the resentment and the bitterness that's eating you like cancer? You want to get rid of that? You pray. You pray for them. You plead for them. You enter into that priestly role to pray for them and to pray good things for their blessing for God to come into their life and to change them. You don't harbor it and store it up. You pray that God would interact. And then lastly, pray for a heart for others. 1 Timothy 2.1 gives us some great ways that we can pray. And it says this right here. First of all, then I urge that Petitions, prayers, and accessions, thanksgiving be made for who? For everyone. For everyone. Those that you like, those that you don't. Your favorite family and the ones that you can't stand to be around. The ones that irritate you and the ones that you just love hanging with. Pray for everyone. And then James says this in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's peace-loving. It's gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. And it shows no favoritism, and it's always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Here's my encouragement to you. Let's start praying for mercy for our city. If we don't, who will? If not us, then who? Secondly, we need to pray for God to do a miraculous work because we can't accomplish this. This has to be God intervening for him to truly change St. Louis. Then we need to pray for boldness do you know of people we prayed we prayed for this service right before it started a group of us that got together that are all part of this service and we prayed for people that we knew were lost do we have a burden for the people 
in our communities, in our neighborhoods, our next door neighbors, our coworkers? Do we truly have a burden? And will we be bold to speak to them? And then also we're supposed to fight for the marginalized, the poor, the weak. And those are overlooked just like those that were in Sodom and Gomorrah. Would you pray with me?